welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. One other thing that, that came to mind as Tiffany was talking, but it actually is very much related to this passage in 3 John, not really part of what I was going to say, but before the service, as I was just kind of being here and walking around, it occurred to me, and then in light of what Tiffany was talking about, and that has to do with this. What we see is not all there is. It's very connected to this passage that we're going to talk about in a moment. But just that concept of what we see is not all there is. And it dawned on me earlier before the service and as the service was getting started that when we come together, whether it's in this venue or inside or wherever it is, that principle holds every time. What we see is not all there is. And part of the sacredness of these gatherings is when we recognize that people are coming in and we might draw conclusions when we first look, not bad conclusions, just we might have a sense of uh, they're doing well, life must be good for them, um, or, or we don't think about the fact that perhaps deeper beneath the surface there are layers of things happening. And it occurred to me again today, part of the beauty and the wonder and the mystery of the body of Christ gathering together is when we have eyes that are open, Emily prayed this earlier, that part of what we see is we see the hurt in people, we see this sense of connectedness with people, and there's a, there's a mysterious bond we have in and through Christ. And again, it may not jump at us right at the surface, but as we we are together, there's this growing recognition that life happens for people, and sometimes it's hard, and sometimes there's difficulties, and we want to be with one another in those times. Well, unless you happen to read Third John at some point <clears throat> this week, maybe read through it couple times. If you were not able to do that, then when Josh read it, it may in fact have been the first time you've ever been exposed to this little book known as Third John. It's one of the one chapter books in the Bible we are looking at in this series we are calling Long Story Short, and it might actually be the second most ignored book in the entire Bible, second only to the book of Obadiah, which we looked at earlier. And just to reiterate a point, I love that we are considering these, if you will, forgotten books in Scripture, these obscure ones, these ones that are easy to fly over, because so often it is in the small and it's in the forgotten where we find God in sometimes surprisingly transformative ways. A couple of weeks ago, my daughter and wife were cleaning the garage and they literally cleaned out every box went through every box in every cabinet in our garage and while they did this i sat in a chair in the garage and watched them and they reminded me that i was doing that several times occasionally they would bring me a box and say something like you know can you at least go through this or it was loving but it was kind of like if you're going to be here do something so they bring the box over and uh, can you look through this and see whether we should keep it or get rid of it. Now, one of the things I'm so appreciative of is that for as long as Julie and I have been together, we are in sync when it comes to clutter. We don't like it, so we throw stuff away really, really fast. It could be unopened, still in 
the package. If we haven't used it, we get rid of it. It could be alive. If we haven't interacted with it, we get rid of it. It could be an heirloom that's worth millions. If we haven't put it out somewhere or no one's worn it, we get rid of it. So we just have that kind of in sync togetherness on that. The default is get rid of it unless we can think of a reason to keep it. So we toss stuff and we toss it quickly. But I started looking through the boxes they were giving me and setting in front of me and I found projects and papers I had written in college and in seminary. And I got lost in these obscure documents from decades ago that have been laying in a box on a garage shelf behind a closed cabinet door and probably haven't been looked at for 35 years. I found an exchange of letters, and I remember as soon as I saw them, it was an exchange of letters I had with the author of a philosophy article I had read when I was a freshman in college, and I didn't agree with what the article was saying, so I wrote the author a note, never thinking he would respond, and we had an exchange of letters over the period of months about some of the stuff that he had said in that article. I found a speech my, that I had given my sophomore year of college, and the speech was on a serial killer in northern Wisconsin known as Ed Gein. It's kind of a weird thing, but I was reading through that going, I remember standing up and giving this speech. And as I came upon these new discoveries, I would read excerpts of them to Julie and Izzy. This may not surprise you, but they weren't as riveted by these things as, <laughs> as I was. But just sitting there going through these obscure things, it triggered all these memories of life and of school and again, stuff hidden away and all of a sudden I was right there. And I would submit that that's this idea of riches in the small stuff. God in the corners, if you will. I mean, that's life, isn't it? Not very often it's big flash, show, marquee, encounter, it's usually God in the small stuff, God in the corners, God in surprising ways. Oh, wow, what is that? That's life, and that is the book of Third John. It's an obscure, ignored little book. It doesn't have anything theologically rich in it. There's nothing revolutionary about it. It adds almost nothing to the overall biblical message, and yet it is in the Bible. And I love this little book for this reason, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons, because it is a deeply personal letter written by the Apostle John to his very good friend, a guy named Gaius, somewhere around 90 AD, probably. Gaius doesn't seem to be any sort of official leader in a local church, but he's a leader nonetheless among his Christian friends, and there's trouble brewing nearby, perhaps in the local church that Gaius and his group of friends used to be part of, there's trouble stirring in this church. A leader has gone rogue, this guy Diotrephes that we'll talk about in a minute. So John writes this very personal letter, very tender letter to his friend Gaius to, among other things, bring him up to speed. So I wanna talk first about the fact that Every one of us needs a soul friend. It kind of is sitting there in this book. And again, much like Tiffany was talking about with art, this book is not a treatise. It's not one, two, three. This book is kind of a picture into a relationship 
between an aging apostle named John and his very good friend Gaius. So John wrote his gospel and his three letters to churches who were in the midst of intense struggle and difficulty. And these churches were at the risk of collapsing because of internal strife. Their future was literally hanging in the balance. And this is happening, as I said, around 90 AD. So if we think about Jesus uh, resurrecting and ascending back to his father somewhere 30, 32, 33, we're not even out of the first century yet. But again, we see the messiness in the church just like we see messiness in life. There's nothing sanitized about this thing called church. So the apostle John, think about it, had actually been with Jesus when Jesus walked the earth. The apostle John had stood at the foot of the cross and looked up and watched Jesus die, standing next to Jesus's mother. He was there when that happened. He saw the empty tomb with his own eyes. So surely one of the original 12 would have the credibility to build churches that were hitting on all cylinders and cruising along without a hitch, or not. The particular trouble plaguing this congregation, as I mentioned, revolved around a rogue leader named Diotrephes. You probably don't want to name your newborn child that. But Diotrephes had a leadership role in the church. Last week, we talked about people going out from the church and preaching a false gospel, these sort of false missionaries that were proclaiming a false gospel. And John wrote the church, and he spoke very aggressively about not welcoming them, not showing hospitality to them, and not getting on board with their heretical work. And that's what 2 John is all about. Well, in this letter of 3 John, he is referring here to true missionaries who are going out and preaching the real gospel. And these missionaries are being sent to very various cities to proclaim the good news, but Diotrephes, this leader in one of the churches, did not offer these authentic missionaries hospitality. He shut the door in their face. You may remember when Josh read, he would actually spread rumors about these people, and he would not allow others in his church to show hospitality to these missionaries. In fact, if he found out that people in his church were showing hospitality to these missionaries, then he would excommunicate the culprits from his congregation. In three simple words, this is a big time mess. Diotrephes was wielding power inappropriately and he was damaging the church and the name of Christ. And John writes his good friend Gaius about these problems. Now Gaius was a close and dear friend of John. Four times in this letter, John refers to him as dear Gaius. And he means it tenderly, not formally. He means it in a relational sense, not dear Gaius. There's some things I'd like to tell you. It's not that. It's my dear Gaius. In fact, the actual word that he uses is beloved. My beloved Gaius. So this is a tender note to his very good friend. And the letter begins not with all this messy stuff that's going on in the church. It begins with John affirming Gaius for who he is, for who he is becoming, and for the good work he's doing for the sake of Jesus. Verse 2, he says, Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. That is a powerful little verse. Such a wonderfully human component in the Bible. One friend, John, 
offering life-giving words to another. I pray you would have good health, that all may go well with you even as your soul is getting along well. And every last one of us, young, old, and everything in between, needs a soul friend like this. A soul friend is someone who cares about us, about all of us, about all of our life. They holistically care about us. I pray that you may enjoy good health. That's the physical side. That's as straightforward as it can be. I pray that you would enjoy good health and that all may go well with you. That's all-encompassing, even as your soul is getting along well. And in this context, that's the inner world of thoughts and feelings, emotions and will. It also encompasses relationships and the overall flow of our lives, that the goodness and the joy and the peace of Christ we are experiencing in life, that we would be uh, full of that goodness and joy and peace. A soul friend then is someone who prays we will experience the shalom of Jesus, that they pray and they interact with us so that the goodness and the flourishing of Jesus might be in our lives. And every last one of us, no exception, needs a friend like this. Now, I want to say this just to clarify. This doesn't necessarily equate to someone we study the Bible with. It might, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. This doesn't necessarily mean someone who, quote-unquote, holds us accountable. It might, but it might not. This is a friend at the level of the soul. This is someone that we have invited in to care for us. John continues in verses 5 and 6. He says, Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers to you. They've told the church about your love. See, Gaius has been offering hospitality to these missionaries that he doesn't even know. He's doing the opposite of Diotrephes. He's giving these missionaries a place to stay. He's opening his home to them. He's feeding them. He's vouching for them. He's saying these folks are the real deal. He's caring for them. And this hospitality flows out of the depth of who Gaius is. I would put it this way. This is a big-souled human being, this Gaius. His soul is getting along well, as John said, and his actions show it. See, it's virtually impossible for any one of us to live in God's kingdom in the details of our sometimes difficult days or discern the action of God's spirit in our lives or grow in the transformation of our character on our own. It was never intended to be that way. And it's virtually impossible for us to experience the shalom of Jesus on our own. Now, we all have friends that are involved in certain aspects of our lives. We have conversations. We have interactions. We horse around, etc. We talk about our jobs, school, sports, whatever. But we all need a soul friend or two, someone we invite into our lives to help us keep our thoughts and our minds and our feelings and our relationships and our choices pointed toward Jesus and his kingdom. Someone who calls out the good in us. Do you have someone in your life who does that? In this life so full of critique and evaluation, we need someone who sees the good in us. And they name it and they call it out. And they keep pointing us 
toward the way of Jesus. And they point us toward the way of Jesus, not in a guilt-ridden, you know, you should do this better kind of way, but in a life-giving way. They breathe life into us, not guilt. And even when they're pushing us a bit, even when they're nudging us forward, they do it in love and they do it with grace. And simple question, do you have this kind of friend in your life, someone who knows you and is getting to know you? They know your hurts. They know your hopes. They know your fears. They know your strengths. They know your weaknesses. Someone perhaps that when you walk into a setting like this with so many people here, while there are so many of us that are seeing you and there's more going on than we're aware, there's at least one person who knows what's going on with you and they are aware. That's a soul friend. Someone who helps you follow in the way of Jesus. I have a friend like this and I will say this as clearly as I can. He is essential to my well-being, essential to my well-being, physically, marriage-wise, relationship-wise, soul-wise, spiritual-wise, thought-wise, feeling-wise, journey-wise. He's essential to my well-being. Now, sometimes there's confusion about how to find a friend like this. I can tell you that probably just won't fall out of the sky right in front of us. Probably won't just happen without some purposefulness on our part. Certainly God orchestrates these things. And even as he orchestrates, we have to be bold on this kind of stuff. And literally, we have to invite others, one, maybe two, into these deeper places. Obviously, you don't run around and do this with everybody. But when God begins to orchestrate, most likely we are going to need to be bold and invite. We want to experience the shalom of the kingdom, and we need this friend to help make that happen. And in order for that friendship to form, we might have to be bold, and we might have to invite others into these things. So I want to leave this idea and just leave it with you to kind of think that through. This idea that every one of us needs a soul friend that is helping us walk in the way of the kingdom. Second and last thing I want to talk about is the opposite of what I just said. It's kind of this diatrophies thing. And I'll just say it this way. Pride, power, and small souls breed big problems. Just a quick word about this. Because as Christians and as the church and as a Christian community, I think we need a regular reminder about how easy it is for us to shrivel up and die and lose the winsome vitality and joy of the kingdom of God. Play word association uh, with you for a moment. Don't say what you're thinking. But if I say the word Christian, and you just were to give voice to the first couple things that came to your mind, or if we were to go down the street here and see some people that are just walking around and said, what do you think if we say Christian, or go over to Target and say that, I have a feeling that in a lot of those instances, maybe in this context as well, ideas like winsome and vitality and joy and love and grace would not be some of the first words thought of after the word Christian. All we need to know about this diatrophies is summarized in verse 9 where John says he loves to be first. I want to think about this. This guy's a leader in the church. He's around this kind of stuff all the time. 
worship services, singing, planning, missionaries. He's around it all the time. He hears these letters read all the time. He reads the scriptures all the time. He teaches the scriptures more than likely, but none of it seems to break through his pride or his love of power or the smallness of his soul. He's a shriveled up guy. His heart is small. His soul is small. His eyes see in a narrow lane, and not a one of us would want to hang out with this guy. He loves to be first. Simple phrase. Now, that idea, he loves to be first, is a proven formula for breeding chaos. I've tried it many times, and it works every time. Push yourself out first, chaos and trouble are going to follow. Diotrephes loved to be the center of attention. He loved to be in control. He loved having power over other people. He loved calling all the shots. He couldn't give others the freedom to lead or make any decisions. And here's the key thing. All of this lived and pulsated in a guy who was a Christ follower and a leader in his church. I just think that's worthy of a short pause. I wish this guy was unique in Christian circles. I'm afraid he isn't. Pride, power, and smallness of soul. Somehow, I don't know how, but somehow seems to survive and at times thrive in those who profess to be Christ followers. You ever interact with someone who says they're a Christian and you're listening to what they're saying and the anger with which they're saying it the passion with which they're speaking, but it really isn't passion, it's anger. There's a fury in them, and you're listening and you're thinking to yourself, how does the idea that you profess to be Christian match up with this? I can't reconcile it. And yet, somehow, pride, power, and smallness of soul seems to survive and at times thrive in those who profess to be Christ followers. And again, we're all dealing with this at some level. This isn't, quote, about them. This certainly is about us at some level. We're not immune to pride or to the love of power or to the smallness of soul. Soul. In fact, I would say we're prone to these things. But here's what I want to say as clear as I can. These things, pride, power, and smallness of soul, are incompatible with being a Christ follower just incompatible. There's this little phrase in verse 11 where John is affirming this other guy named Demetrius, and he's talking about how he imitates the good, or he incarnates the good, we might say. So we come back to our need for those who know us and who can lovingly help us grow past these soul viruses. See, one of the core components of our faith is one of the core attributes of the founder of our faith, and it is easily lost and forgotten and put on a shelf in the garage and the cabinet doors closed and it's in a box and it just gets lost. It's a core component of what it means to be Christian and it's a core attribute of the founder of our faith. In Paul's words in Philippians 2 and verse 3, it's stated this way, in humility value others above yourselves. And that core component, that quality, is humility. And I think, in many ways, the Christian community in our time has got humility in a box, 
on a shelf, in the garage, underneath a bunch of other stuff, and the door is closed, and it's just hidden there. I'm sure you can sense the difference when you're with a Christian person who is humble, holds power in an open hand, and is large of soul, big of soul, versus someone who professes to have faith, but they're proud, they're power hungry, and they're small of soul, and they're self-oriented, and they're inauthentic, and all of this stuff is covered up with religious words and slogans and Bible verses. Some of the most arrogant Christians I've ever met have incredible knowledge of the Bible. But it's all out here. It's all a set of clothes that make us look good. So I want to keep inviting us to be people who are humble before God and before each other. People who use whatever power we have, and we all have it, to sacrifice and serve others. People who are big in soul, large-souled people. I love that idea. Tiffany talking about pictures. I love the picture of a large-souled church versus a small-souled church. See, a community of people growing in this is a different kind of community where weakness, to use Paul's phrase in 2 Corinthians 12, weakness is delighted in. Because when we're weak and when we admit it and when we own it and when we accept it, then, as Paul says, through Christ, we're strong. And we as a local church can actually, believe it or not, make a difference in this contentious and angry and divided world when we're humble and hospitable, large-souled, instead of proud and stingy, small-souled. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are deeply grateful for this beautiful day, and I recognize that we're sitting here in these few moments on this Sunday, and for some people, this has been a difficult week, part of a difficult month, part of a difficult quarter, part of a difficult year. And so we come before you again as people who cannot do this without you. We cannot trend toward your kingdom without your Holy Spirit's guidance. And we cannot do this without each other. So we continue to pray that we might be humble people. We might be a humble church. We might learn how to lean into each other so that we might walk fully in your ways. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.